When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. Uh, But this week, once again, better known as Let's Talk About Things Plato Invented, baby. 
doesn't have the same ring to it. I am your host, Liv, the woman who's trying to very kindly and considerately destroy all your childhood dreams about a lost island of Atlantis. But hey, we'll always have the Disney movie, right? Ugh, Milo. This week is the first in my series of Atlantis-related conversation episodes. Honestly, this is kind of what sparked the idea for me in general, or more so made it clear that my covering Atlantis, while non-traditional and tricky and requiring heavy, heavy amounts of research into things I'm much less familiar with, is important. The idea of Atlantis as a myth from ancient Greece or a story from actual history has picked up in recent years, with so-called documentaries covering Atlantis on major networks and in often deceptive sorts of ways. There's a group out there who would suggest that it's harmless to search for Atlantis, a concept that we heard on Tuesday's episode is truly based in Plato's imagination, and as we'll cover on next Tuesday's episode, serves explicitly as an allegory to prove a philosophical point about ideal societies and hubris. But the truth is that searches for things like that, things that are inherently false and not based in reality, take away from real archaeology, a field that is supremely important to understanding ancient cultures and human history. But on top of that, Atlantis is linked with really dark conspiracy theories and bad actors online who promote nonsense science and nonsense pseudo-archaeology that often devolves into racist theories on human evolution. Ugh. Unfortunately, the idea of Atlantis maybe being real is no longer harmless, and I'd rather you all hear me talk about the truth of the story of Atlantis rather than accidentally stumbling upon some of those dark and troubling racist theories and ideologies. So today, I'm bringing you the first of these conversations I've had with archaeologists. Real archaeologists. Today's episode is with Flint Dibble, a researcher at Cardiff University who studies animal bones and who's knowledgeable on the Bronze Age Mediterranean, particularly Bronze Age Athens, which is the best starting point for looking at why Atlantis isn't something anyone should bother looking for. We talked about Mediterranean archaeology of the Bronze Age, zooarchaeology, that is, animal bones, and what they mean about these time periods. Fascinating. I got to ask about Hecatomes, a special interest of mine since reading you all the Iliad. We talked about the dangers of pseudo-archaeology and the importance of working from the known to the unknown rather than the other way around. We talk about these recent so-called searches for Atlantis and the issues around them, and so much more. It's seriously fun, in addition to being fascinating, important, and full of Bronze Age archaeological tidbits. Ugh. I think you'll all really enjoy this episode, and you will absolutely learn something. A couple notes, this was recorded back in November, as you'll hear with the connection to American Thanksgiving, and if you can believe it, hecatomes. And you'll also just note a couple moments where I've removed or silenced a couple of people's names. Because, well, I don't want to get sued, and Atlantis is touchy as hell. I am nervous enough about this series without naming people. As always, I absolutely love these conversation episodes. I learn so much, and then I get to bring it to you. These special Atlantis conversations are no different. Oh, is there so much to learn, so much I didn't know until I started digging into this and speaking with these archaeologists. You are in for a wild ride, as if I haven't said that enough when it comes to Atlantis. 
conversations from the known to the unknown. Atlantis versus Mediterranean archaeology with Flint Dibble. I think a lot of people come at it from a really like really honest place of just growing up in a world where you think it's at least a Greek myth. I mean, even I sort of thought that for a while until I sat down and looked into it and I realized what it was coming from. And so, you know, yeah, it's something that's totally understandable. It's just presented in that way. You're sort of brought up to think it like I grew up, you know, I'm in my 30s, which means I was a kid when that Atlantis movie came out, the Disney movie, right? And like, I I think that one's so fascinating and that's definitely going to tie in (laughs) to these series of episodes as some kind of funny bonus. But I sort of definitely always thought that Atlantis was at the very least a Greek myth. Like, I don't think I ever thought it was real or something that could be found, but I at least associated it with Greek mythology in the Greek mythology that I study now in a way that it is deeply not. (laughs) It is just a thing that Plato wrote. Um, So I'd love to, I mean, I guess just generally your thoughts on that, but also how it kind of, how you think it sort of exploded from beyond uh, that's that's actually a tough question for me to answer <laughs> yeah. um because you know i'm in my 30s too um barely but <laughs> i still am and uh and so uh i i grew up thinking that as well watching the same movies and seeing the same tv shows and reading the same comics comic books and so you know in many ways i thought it was kind of like a greek myth as well And it actually wasn't until I got on Twitter back in 2018 when I started seeing um, people like David Anderson and Steph Holmhofer tweeting so much about pseudo-archaeology and the problems that it has in the world. I always thought of stuff like ancient aliens as something to joke about, right? Mm -hmm. You can make a joke, oh yeah, aliens did this, that kind of thing. And I slowly, and I even said that on Twitter, you know, look, this is just all fun and games. What's the real harm? And so I started doing some more reading and research, and I started realizing that this is harmful, um, partly because there is a rise in conspiracy theories um, of late, uh, partly because this oftentimes does connect to racism. Um, mm-hmm. White people can't, or white people can do this, but people of color cannot. Um, indigenous people throughout the world, and Atlantis is one of those that has been used to kind of steal people's accomplishments and to promote different uh, groups of people like the Aryans. Um, And so it's only slowly dawned upon me um, how harmful this kind of stuff is. Um, But as I've started recognizing it, of course, I've started to do more research on it and to get at the core of that. And uh, so being an archaeologist who focuses on ancient Greece and who focuses on classical Greece, I'm very, very familiar with Plato. But I'd not actually read the Phaedrus or the Timaeus in detail. Um, until uh, that the the latest TV series on Atlantis came out, and I got involved with the host on Twitter, and so I sort of sat down and I read it, and I sort of uh, it dawned on me that this isn't like other myths. This very much comes out of Plato's imagination, mm-hmm. um, and there's a few reasons that I can see that. Sorry, now I feel like I'm rambling. <laughs> no, that's the thing, right? It, once you actually sit down and you read it, I think it becomes so much more clear how bizarre it is that it has become what it is this thing that people think they can find because you're reading it and and not only is it pretty clear that it's out of Plato's imagination but he often doesn't even seem to be totally serious like there's some tongue in cheek like there's some you know it is so an allegory but it's almost kind of like a nudge nudge like look how silly this is kind of allegory 
Yes, I think there's a lot of that there. Um, there's actually a fantastic article written by um, Thomas Johansson in 1998 called Truth, Lies, and History in Plato's Timaeus Critias. Mm. And that's the entire part of the article is this is all this tongue-in-cheek thing where they set up, they, they first say, we're lying to you. Then they set up the history behind how this lie gets built in a way that seems truthful. So there would be historiography. And then and then they do this nudge, nudge, wink, wink thing. We're telling the truth about this, right? There's all these, uh, there's this history behind it. My great grandfather told this to, or heard this from Solon and da, 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 da. And so they build this kind of fake history and it's all done completely in this nudge, nudge, wink, wink uh, way. And, 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 you know, and like you, you sit down and you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's nothing like that. That's done as if it's a myth. It's a sing to me muse about what happened with these heroes. But you go and you kind of think about the dialogues of Plato and you read, say, the Republic, which, you know, they set it up as if that took this, these dialogues take place right after the Republic. It's done kind of in a similar way where they sort of, you think about the city of pigs where Socrates kind of says, oh, imagine this city where boom, and then they, they build off of that with that kind of imaginary thought experiment. And so, yeah, it's very, very different within the narrative of Plato in that sense. Yeah. And it, it's just so intentionally, you know, he's, he's, the whole thing is to make a point, you know, the whole thing is to make an unrelated point about hubris. And the thing that gets to me most, and, you know, I think we can go lots of different ways with this conversation, but it, the thing that stands out to me when you're reading that and looking for, you know, the reasons why it's so obviously nonsense is this idea that at the exact same supposed time that Atlantis was this like powerhouse of super technologically advanced, like all of this stuff there, the, so the idea is that Athens was also and and he, they give a timeline, right? Like, what is it? It's like 8,000 years before when Plato was writing or something 9, 000, in that. Yeah. 9,000, yeah. Yeah. And then he's like, yeah, so 9,000 years ago, <laughs> you know, Atlantis, for one, it says specifically that it's also Atlantis was bigger than Asia and Libya. And I'm kind of like, well, you know, given Libya, when they say that, they mean like most of Northern Africa. Like, okay, so where, how, how could it possibly be that big? And we don't know where it is. Whatever. <laughs> um, you know, it's huge. And 9,000 years ago, this huge epic place was so technologically advanced. And at the same time, Athens was too. And they were equally amazing. And they fought. You know, and you're like, why does every like everyone leaves out that Athens was too whenever they want to this yeah. idea that Atlantis was real. It's like, ignore Athens because that's easily provably wrong. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought when I sat down to write my first Twitter thread in May was at first I was invited to write this thread by a colleague of mine to debunk this show. And uh, and so at first I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. I just want to stay away. And then I, I, I kind of looked at the theory behind the show and it was like, well, the problem is, is not that people have been looking in the wrong place. It's that they've been looking in the wrong time. Right. And so Plato says 9000 years before Solon. So we're talking 9600 BC. There's just no way there's no archaeology from that period of settled societies in these areas. There's there's no archaeology from Athens. Right. So, you know, that's that's always been a problem with people looking for Atlantis is 9600 BCE. You just have the beginnings of maybe some settlements in the Near East and then that's it. There's no yeah. Egypt. There's no Greece. There's no people settled down and farming in these areas uh, like the Greek world. Not at all. There's still thousands of years prior to farming in the Greek world. And so, yeah, there's just no way. There's not a single find from Athens from that time period. But so I sit down and read it and it's like saying, well, let's redate it to 
you know, 4,000 years before Plato for X, Y, Z reason. And I'm even then thinking, yeah, that's really easy to disprove because we can still go to Athens because Athens, all right, at this time, there's archaeological evidence. So, but it's the very first archaeological evidence from Athens. It's basically like 12 wells full of people's (laughs) trash. And then up on the Acropolis, there's a fragment of a figurine. And that's basically, and by trash, I mean like broken up potsherds, so your plates and your bowls and your cups, and then animal bones. And that's it in one figurine. And there's like, you know, Plato describes a the temple of Athena, and he describes the warriors that live on the Acropolis and all this kind of stuff. We've excavated the Acropolis down to the bedrock. And none of that stuff exists. It's not like we're not sure about it. It certainly did not exist. And so, yeah, it sort of became easy to kind of say, well, the archaeology can't back it up. And it always surprised me why people never thought about this in the in the public imagination. Everybody goes immediately to disproving Atlantis. They pay attention to the description of Atlantis that Plato gives, and they say, well, this might match this, it might match that, it might not match that. And they always play this game with his description of Atlantis, but they never even look for his description of Athens and think about how it doesn't work. And on that note, sorry, I'm still rambling. No, no. On, on that note, it doesn't really work at any time period. You know, so when you sit down and you look at the description of Athens, it doesn't match any period. So another time period that people like to think of it for Atlantis is Santorini. So, mm-hmm. you know, the time of the Minoans, the Bronze Age and the, the volcanic eruption at Santorini that destroys um, the city of Akrotiri there. Right. And so it's obviously a, a, a major natural disaster, a catastrophe that destroys the city that we you know, like Pompeii type style, let's say, freezing it in time. Bigger. Bigger in some ways. Yeah, exactly. It caused a major tsunami that people think of, could mm-hmm. be felt on different islands, including Crete. But even then, if you go and look at Athens from that period, now Athens, it, it's bigger at that time. We have more evidence, but it's certainly not what Plato is describing. And even the the the, the clearest thing that you could even say maybe as Bronze Age is he describes a wall around the Acropolis, right? Mm. And there is a Bronze Age wall around the Acropolis, but it's built after Santorini by several hundred years. And so it clearly doesn't match that. And uh, and so, yeah, nothing about it can really match Athens. I had, uh, reading this fairly recently, I have this idea that what Plato used when he described Athens, so so just to step back a second, when, when Plato, he, what he's doing is he's trying to, he builds this city in the Republic. That's the ideal city. And then he wants to set up this story of what happens when that city goes to war. So they say, let's make Athens that city. And then let's make Atlantis the city they're fighting against. And so it's kind of like he then looks around the city of Athens and he finds three things that he knows are pretty old. And so one of those is the early Acropolis wall which we Mm -hmm. just mentioned, that's built right near the end of the Bronze Age. So, you know, 1250 BCE, certainly well after uh, the eruption of of Santorini, of Thera. Um, Then he finds the Athena Temple. That's built around 650 BCE. And that's really cool because the Persians destroyed that, right? Around 480 BCE when the Persians came, they take over Athens and they destroy it. So this is like a generation before Plato. And the people in that generation, after it was destroyed, they said, we want to leave these ruins visible. 
So they, 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 they didn't build anything on the Acropolis for 50 years until Pericles came around and built the Parthenon and the Erechtheion. But even then, they didn't touch those ruins. Those ruins, if you go on Google Map today, Google Earth today, and you zoom in on the Acropolis, you can see the outline of that Athena temple. It was mm-hmm. left untouched. It's still visible today if you go up to the Acropolis or you zoom in on it because they monument, they, they memorialized it, let's say. And so that was visible for Plato to see. He knew about it. So he knew this was an earlier thing to put into this story, right? So he has that wall from 1250 B.C., the temple, the Athena temple from 650 B.C. And then he adds one other thing, which is this spring called the Clepsydra, which is right at the Acropolis. Basically, all the bedrock is limestone. So when when water rains on it, it absorbs into it and creates these channels, which you can tap as a spring. And so that's what the Clepsydra is. And we know that the Clepsydra was used during the Bronze Age and, and, and down the Archaic period. But it, right around the time Plato was writing was when they built it up. They built some walls around it and turned it into something sort of more formal to use. And so these were the three sort of archaeological artifacts of the past that he could use to build his early Athens, let's say. And so those were accurate, though the timeline's not very accurate. Never were they in use, all three of them at the same time. Um, the, the, the walls around the Acropolis were destroyed before the Athena temple, for example. But then he then builds up this idea of like geology, because this is kind of a, it's a story about the natural, you know, natural disasters destroying Atlantis, right? Because Zeus does that. He buries it in water. Um, but it's also a story about Athens where he talks about how he, it, it, Athens, I guess, experienced these natural disasters in a more plausible, believable way with erosion, for example. So he describes how, you know, you go out to Attica and you see the hills and the hills have been, they used to have all the soil, but due to the rainfall, the big sort of rainfall that happened, the soil washed away, very believable like, right? And so he describes the Acropolis, for example, as much bigger. It used to be huge. It would stretch from the Acropolis to Likavitos. And we know our modern geology shows that can't happen. And it's also kind of ironic because his Acropolis wall is around the Acropolis as he saw it. So if the Acropolis <laughs> was bigger, then the Acropolis wall would have to be somewhere else, right? And so it's even like kind of ironic in his own description of it. And yeah, it just can't match for all these various reasons. And so... <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing that always gets me. And then, you know, you even think just even from a complete like lay person, just base level mythology, you know, the thing that always gets me is Athens is barely in the Iliad. It's like it's like a a tiny little footnote almost like in the catalog of ships. And I think like maybe somebody is from Athens and that's it. And so it's just such an obvious thing to me where it's like, from that time period, from that, you know, even just the time period of the Iliad and the Odyssey, let alone earlier, Athens was nothing. Like they, they weren't a major powerhouse. They weren't, you know, they weren't a, a region to be worried about or to be like looked up to, you know, like we've got Mycenae and, you know, the Minoans and all of that was, they were major players in the Bronze Age. And Athens just wasn't like, they were around, but they weren't like them, right? I mean, unless well, I'm totally wrong. Well, <laughs> maybe. That's actually an open-ended question. A lot of people think okay. they were like them. Um, so that wall I was telling you about, mm-hmm. now not much of it's left. You know, we just have little fragments of it. 
because it's it, the, the later rebuilding of the wall of the Acropolis after the Persian destruction, um, that where they built the column drums from the earlier Parthenon into it, that destroyed most of that Bronze Age wall. And so you can kind of peek through and see some of it, though, as you're going up to the Acropolis, there's the bastion where the Temple of Athena Nike is sitting. And you can mm-hmm. kind of look in, you can see parts of the Bronze Age wall that are left. And so, and again, remember that rebuilding that I'm talking about, that happened during Plato's lifetime. So it's kind of fresh in his mind, that Bronze Age wall. And so because of that leveling of stuff, there's actually some thoughts that there was a pretty large palace at at Athens. Um, People oftentimes think that uh, part of the reason that Athens was not a major player in the Iliad and Odyssey was just partly the types of groups that were writing the myth or orally uh, communicating yeah. that mythology. It wasn't that Athens wasn't big because we have pretty important burials and graves from the Bronze Age. Um, there's Tholoi in, 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 in Attica, for example. Um, so like at Marathon, there's a really mm-hmm. large Tholos with some horses buried in the Dromos and some of the other burials inside. Um, and then it, in the Agora, so downtown, the marketplace and stuff, there's all these civic buildings. Um, there's this civic building called the Stoa Basileus, the, the, the Royal Stoa. And so right there in front of it is the largest architectural block in Athens. And that's where the archons would swear their oath of office. It was, it was a very important stone. And one of the, there's a pretty important hypothesis. Oh, I'm trying to, I'm blanking on who came up with it. It was decades ago. That that was actually a lintel block from Atholos in Athens. Mm. That had been destroyed and dismantled in the cemetery underneath the Agora in that area. And so it probably was a pretty important city, uh, really from the from the late Bronze Age on, at least. It was certainly one of the larger settlements in Greece, and and the burial evidence would confirm that. But okay. it might not have, we don't have like the gold and the wealth of Mycenae mm-hmm. and Knossos and things like that. So it's not quite necessarily on that scope, but it's still, it's pretty important. Okay. Um but the addition in the Iliad, that's that some people think that's uh, something called the Pisistratic recension. So, you know, when when the Iliad starts, it's it's oral poetry mm-hmm. and it eventually gets written down. And it, that's a long process, probably. And some people think that, that that the writing down the majority of it might have happened in, a, in an orthodox sort of form. Uh, during, or at least semi-orthodox form, during the 6th century, when Pisistratus was ruling Athens, he was a tyrant and was fairly powerful. And uh, so he might have lobbied to include Athens in there mm-hmm. in that catalog. So that's an easy place to slip somebody mm-hmm. in, in the catalog of ships. You know the catalog I mean? of ships, yeah. yeah. Name yeah. 1,200 different city-states, right? And so, yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I actually, uh, I just recently had uh, Joel Christensen on to talk about Homeric epic and when it was written down and all those different things and yeah he also mentioned that it was probably written down in Athens and and therefore maybe they got included in that way a little bit of a you know propaganda going on yeah (laughs) yeah that's so interesting I love that um yeah so I mean it's just it's so fascinating to me that's the number one thing that this idea of like looking you know looking at Atlantis as if you know, in the furthest reaches of whatever, you know, that it could possibly maybe even slightly be anything real, but then everyone forgets about Athens, like as if that is not part of the story. And it's just, it's such an obvious way to completely, you know, to, to just completely fudge your argument by, by like forgetting this vital piece that makes it easily, you know, provable or disprovable. And I like to think that that's a big difference between pseudo-archaeology and real archaeology. Mm-hmm. So real archaeology, one of the rules when you're excavating, let's say, right? And so you're excavating and you start hitting upon a new layer of dirt, let's say, or a couple stones that might be a wall, 
but you're not sure. One of the rules of thumb is you work from known to unknown. And so because you start with what you know and you, 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 you uncover in that direction towards what you're trying to find out. And so you, you do that when you're surveying in the landscape. You do that when you're, when you're excavating. You do that when you're trying to understand the past period. And pseudo-archaeology, on the other hand, is going for this really large, big, fake Atlantis thing. So you, you just start with that. You say, oh, Plato mentioned round settlements. Uh, well, there's only round settlements here. Well, there's round settlements everywhere, you realize. You can find round settlements in almost all every single period of history and, and prehistory. And uh, wherever people are settling, they're, they're oftentimes building round settlements. And so, you know, you start finding these things and you say, well, this kind of looks like it. You squint a little bit. But, it, but what real scientific archaeology does is it works from known to unknown. And so, and, and that's where, you know, that's what, that's what really struck me with that Athens thing was we need to start with that. And it's also a, a, an, an easy way to kind of disprove it. Um, you also mentioned the mythology aspect, and that's another important way to be able to disprove this as well. This just doesn't read like mythology, you know? It, yeah, and yeah. it doesn't appear in a single myth. Like, exactly. If it was a myth, if it was a story, if it was history, if it was literally anything except a thing out of Plato's mind, it would appear in at least one other source. Or a piece of art. Because yes. we get yeah. we get mythic mythical representations on art that we don't always have mythical stories of. Like there's mm -hmm. this really famous one of uh I think it's Achilles and Odysseus playing uh, it, <laughs> Yeah, playing yeah, the game. Playing the game, yeah. I love or, that. Or or you get you get you get representations of Aeneas carrying mm. his father out the city of Troy 300 years before the Aeneid, 400 years mm -hmm. before the Aeneid. So we know that that was a story in circulation as an oral story, right? And so, but yeah, with Atlantis, you have none of that. Nothing, none. nothing. And nope. so the only, <laughs> the only thing is in Plato, and Plato has all kinds of stuff that doesn't exist elsewhere except for afterwards by other philosophers. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. And I mean, yeah, it, Especially, you know, if you look at, okay, so the story says that Solon, you know, told it to somebody or to this guy's great grandfather or whatever it is, you know, and then Solon heard it in Egypt. So, okay, wh why is there not a single piece of representation of it in any kind of history or art or anything from Egypt? It's yeah. like, you know, we, we also know there's nothing there. So if the Egyptians were watching, you know, and paying attention and they had these stories, they would have also referenced it in some kind of way. Like, it's just, I mean, it, it seems so easy to just say that, but it is it's simply impossible that something this major, this important, this kind of, this, like, the, the thing that Atlantis is supposed to be, that something like that could have ever existed or happened and not a single other reference. Not yeah. a single serious reference. Like, Herodotus would have heard something. That dude was wandering around everywhere. You know, <laughs> like, Herodotus would have heard something. He would have said, he would have written it down. You know, there would be a he myth. There would done, be so many things. He would have done his Grandpa Simpson thing and told, like, a long story about it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we would have something, you know? No, and I mean, and archaeologists that, have looked, you know? Like, it's not like... In the 19th and early 20th centuries, there were not a lot of scholars looking for it. There were. But, you know, in the last 70 years, I don't think there's any serious archaeologists that have even tried to look for it because it's now every single avenue of possibility has been explored. Mm -hmm. And it's not like there's I, I, I there's all kinds of things that I, I know people are searching for that I even think is kind of silly. Certain things from myth, for example. But searching for things from myth has a better basis. Um, to a certain degree. 
Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, searching for this, every single avenue has been explored. And the issue is, is now it's just being misused. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and sometimes just on a greedy level to sell books and TV shows, sometimes on a more sinister level to, uh, you know, bring people back towards Nazi level of thinking. I was attacked by this YouTuber um, uh, who, who basically is an outright Nazi. He consistently tweets about the meanings of swastikas and how they're good and things like that. Like literally a Nazi. I don't mean like that in any sort of exaggerated way. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is literally a Nazi reading Nazi scholarship and sharing it with his audience on his YouTube channel. And so, you know, this is my issue with sort of popularizing this kind of thing. Because if you start getting people to think that, hey, there's actually some archaeologists maybe out there looking for Atlantis, you go and Google it, you you might find that they're not good either. They're just trying to sell books and stuff like that for money and TV shows. But you could also find actual Nazis. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's just uh, I don't want people going in that direction. I want them to go towards real archaeology because it's pretty cool. You know? Well, yeah, that's the thing, right? Like real archaeology, real history. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and then that's, you know, that reminds real me. Real mythology, too. That- too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Big fan over here. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the thing, too, that, you know, that just reminds me that the Nazis were looking for Atlantis. And I think that really says something, too. Right. And that that has spread further. But the, they actually had like a subsection looking for Atlantis in, in seriousness. And and I think that's, I mean, suggestive of the. The bigger problem, like a lot of people can go to Atlantis out of curiosity, out of interest, just kind of like thinking that's cool. Like, And I get that, you know, it is cool, especially if, you know, you grew up watching the Disney movie and you think, man, that'd be kind of cool. Like if that was real, that would be cool. The problem is, is that if you're not one of those people, but or even if you are, you can find your way, you can accidentally get into this world of the very dark side of it, which, you know, to, to my understanding is along the lines of and a way to disprove the theory that everyone came out of Africa is to say, well, no, this subset of white people came out of Atlantis and thus there's absolutely no, you know, Africa in, in them. And that is horrifying and dark. And then you're suddenly in this like deeply horrifically racist realm of the internet and then maybe real life. Yeah, no. And I mean, early archeologists also took away credit for, from African nations and, 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 and American indigenous peoples saying Mm -hmm. that this was Atlantis, right? Because Mm -hmm. that's the explanation for these kind of things. And so, you know, there's all kinds of different, let's say degrees to this of, but none of them are good. It's all just pseudo archeology span that's made up and, and, there's always some underlying level of racism there, unfortunately. I mean, with much of it that, that exists in our world, we, we live in a world that has been built upon white supremacy um, within the last several hundred years. So it's very pervasive. But this is an easy one to at least try to tackle because mm-hmm. uh, it's not part of uh, there's there's nothing for it at all now other than uh, fiction, which, you know, whatever fiction's fiction. There's different ways to use fiction. Um, mm-hmm. but to, to, to argue that it's real has these real problems and can lead people even further towards other kinds of conspiracy theories that are out there today. Uh, cause there's a lot of them. They're really quite, uh, pervasive, let's say mm-hmm. in our 21st century. Oh my God. Are yeah. they ever? Yeah. Well, one thing I could say yeah. about the racism is I think a mm-hmm. lot of that actually can even be related back to Plato. Mm-hmm. So Plato mm-hmm. really talks about the 
you know, because the ancient Greeks were really into pure bloodlines and things like that. And Mm -hmm. Plato really talks about eugenics in his Republic. And so part of the reason why Zeus destroys Atlantis is because their bloodlines started becoming mixed. And so even (sighs) that very aspect builds into ideas of eugenics today that are, and you can see why it's immediately quickly adopted by racist elements and white supremacist elements, because this story that Plato told has that sort of baked in. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's why we don't necessarily, philosophies moved on from Plato, for example. And at the same time, you know, we need to be careful with, with how we read these kind of things and how we, how we interpret them and how they can be picked up. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Just as an aside. No, that's interesting. Yeah. I've not, I've not read any Plato except for this because I really don't have a ton of interest uh, and <laughs> just wild stuff. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's good to know. I mean, I also think it, you know, and this is the trouble with the whole, like a, a whole realm of this world of, you know, the, the amount of, you know, quote unquote whiteness that has been put on ancient Greece, you know, for, for what, you know, nothing to be said about, you know, the races or skin colors back then, because they just didn't have any kind of frame of reference. It wasn't, it wasn't the same thing. You know, they weren't, they weren't thinking that way. They were, they had their, their major, you know, issues, their, their uh, xenophobias and everything, but it was uh, not necessarily to do with skin color. Um, But there's been a huge amount of whiteness that has been placed upon Greece, specifically ancient Greece as a way to, you know, you know, account for quote unquote Western civilization and, Mm -hmm. you know, the invention of all of the good things and all the, you know, I, I recently got into a Instagram. I, I've been attempting to do Instagram reels, which I should learn that it's a bad idea. But, you know, I, I just <laughs> I made the, you know, they're just like you basically 60 seconds worth of video, which means you're really mm-hmm. limited in terms of what you can say. And so that's like a short TikTok or something. Yeah, they're like TikTok. <laughs> exactly. Um, you can tell out of touch I am because I'm like Instagram instead of the cool one, which is TikTok. Um, but <laughs> But basically, I just made the point of, you know, the way in which we talk about um or with some basically just some something connecting the the whiteness that has been put upon ancient greece and how raising them up as this like special most incredible like the best group in the mediterranean is inherently linked to white supremacy and oh my god the way people lose their minds and prove my point by saying i'm wrong um you know (laughs) they're like what are you talking about greece invented literally everything arts and poetry and (laughs) philosophy and i'm like well you just proved my point my point is we can't that's not true and we can't be saying stuff like that because it promotes white supremacy and here you are not true but the ancient greeks were pretty terrible people they ate dogs pretty regularly i have studied a whole lot of butchered dog bones so you know if you're supporting the ancient greeks you're supporting dog eating then again if you're supporting most ancient cultures you're probably supporting dog eating because you know, we, 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 it's just a fairly recent thing that we stopped eating dog, to be well, honest. I'm, I'm glad <laughs> <we did. laughs> no, but that's the thing, right? It's like any anything that suggests that one culture was better than another, you know, and and then when you have that culture be the one that whiteness has been put upon in such a like strong and, you know, overarching way, like there's going to be a problem. But it's yeah, yeah of course, it, it links back to all of that. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it 
anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From a... I suppose on archaeology side or just like a, you know, myth versus nonsense from Plato side. I'm interested in in the fact that like we've we've found something that they can call Troy. So I guess the search for Troy has become, you know, less of the forefront and it doesn't have the same racial implications as looking for Atlantis. But do you have any thoughts on like the yeah, the, you know, proving of things from Homer? <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's important, too, because I think that actually builds into this. Having engaged on Twitter with a lot of these pseudo archaeologists, Mm. um, a lot of people will say, well, you know, Schliemann found Troy when everybody thought that nobody could find that. And it's sort of like, well, 
you know, Schliemann was like one of the first archaeologists ever. And so it was before archaeology even yeah. started looking. Well, sure. I'm not saying he was a good archaeologist. <laughs> no. uh, that's not the point here. The point is, is that there wasn't a field of archaeology at the time of Schliemann. And so, you know, it's kind of different to bring up that kind of analogy. And even then, there's all kinds of, it's a big can of worms. Um, the reason we know that that city is Troy has nothing to do with us knowing that it's the Troy from the Iliad. It has to do with the fact that the later Greeks and Romans thought that that was Troy. Mm -hmm. And so certainly there was a city there from 1200 BC from earlier. There was, there was, the city goes back by, by millennia. Um, but at the same time, there's no real clear evidence for like a Trojan war right there. So it's not like we have uh, uh, Hector's grave or Patroclus's tumulus. We don't have that kind of stuff. It's not like we have, we hear about the mask of Agamemnon back at Mycenae. No, that's not Agamemnon's mask. That dates <laughs> from a completely different period than the 1200 BC that we think that this war, if it could have happened, could have happened. We really don't have any evidence for some kind of uh, large conflict at that time. What we have is, is, is a sort of collapse of civilization that occurs at that time. But that's much more widespread than the area where the Trojan War took place. That includes mm -hmm. from the entire Eastern Mediterranean, from Egypt all the way up through the Near East, all the way through Turkey, all the way through Greece, and, and potentially beyond. And like I just had an article coming out about how that can relate to climate change and how people adapted mm -hmm. to it and changed their ways of producing food. Um, and so, you know, that, that's a bigger issue than a Trojan War. And so what we do have in myths, of course, are, are, are pieces of material culture. So descriptions of armor and weapons and things like that, that we can relate to things on the ground, right? And that's actually really fascinating too, because it's all mixed and mashed up. I always love it when we go and you, you think of like your your stereotypical historian or archaeologist in a movie. So, you know, like, let's say I'm watching the movie Troy with Brad Pitt. You'd probably be thinking, God, I'm going to critique that armor, right? And I'm going to critique that the way that that wall is built or something like that. Well, you could do that to Homer because the Iliad and the Odyssey just mixes and matches shield types. So it, it mentions shields that we know from burials that date to 1600 B.C., 1200 BC, 800 BC, they're all in there, right? There's, it's full of anachronisms. It's like Brad Pitt on his mobile phone, you know, like <laughs> it's that kind of thing. It's, it, that's right there in the Iliad. And, and you even get it within the very same scene. So I'm forgetting the name of the hero. So we know different spear types, right? So you have like the big hefty spear that you'll sort of haft and stab people with versus the lighter spear that you'll throw. And we know that these date to different periods from the Bronze Age, which is when we think the Trojan War happens, and the Iron Age, when Homer's writing or composing, not writing, whatever, yeah. when he's when he's telling his stories, you know. right? It's so hard to if phrase that. You're like, Homer. I know what I'm talking about, but I need to make it simple. Okay, Homer was writing. He wasn't actually, and he you know probably I mean. wasn't real, but Homer was if writing. If Homer was even a person, right? If yeah. Was a guy or a girl or a guy and a girl, I don't know. And, uh. And so it, we, we have these different types of spears within the exact same scene, like within a couple lines of each other, mm -hmm. it goes from one spear to another in the hands of this one hero. And so it's just like, 
Homer, Homer, the poets. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it! The I know. Poets. I do it too, but yeah, my yeah. listeners uh, should understand. I do now. this in class as well. I mean, you know, yeah. whatever. It's fine. Homer is a metaphor for the poets, right? Yeah. And so, so the poets—they're using what works for the meter because everything's defined by that dactylic hexameter. And so, if the terms they're using, they have these different phrases that are repetitively using. Sometimes they fit right there at that point in the line. And so that fits for that kind of long spear. Other times it's for the short spear. And so you'd expect that kind of change because it's not consistent narratively or material culturally. It's a totally anachronistic. And so if you ever have me in the movie, I just care if the movie's good. I don't care if it's accurate. If it's anachronistic and 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 Brad Pitt phones up Thetis on his cell phone saying, <laughs> tell Zeus to send an explosion towards the Trojans, rolling barrels on fire, I'm all for that if it's fun. Because <laughs> that's what the Iliad was, you know? Yeah. That's really interesting. I had no idea because I obviously don't know any of the, I mean, warfare, let alone just like the... You know, the intricacies of you know that kind of history historical part but that's really that's really interesting just to hear the level of anachronisms that even existed in that it's yeah, such a mishmash I, it's so it's so fun even yeah. to, and you can't what that means though is you can't really pick out exactly which parts or scenes that you're not sure of are early mm-hmm. iron age from late bronze age you have to work from known to unknown So Mm -hmm. you can only go with what you already have. We have these spear types that we have already given chronology to, and then we can try to pick them out in Homer. You can't go from Homer to archaeology. It has to go from archaeology to Homer if you Mm -hmm. want to look at what's real, let's say, right? And so, yeah, yeah, known to unknown. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. no, that's really important and interesting. And I mean, it's definitely the... the most obvious way to differentiate between this like pseudo-archaeology nonsense where it's like, I want to prove this thing. So I'm going to go and I'm going to find all these things that I think prove this thing because I'm going to prove what I want to prove. I'm not going to look at what the actual, you know, evidence is, what the what the, the history, the archaeological evidence, whatever. I'm just going to prove what I want to prove. And, and if you do it that way, it's really easy to prove nonsense things because yeah. you're just picking and choosing. And you're just connecting random dots. And mm-hmm. so that's the problem with conspiracy theorists. Conspiracy theorists, in my mind, they do a lot of real good research. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is they're starting from the unknown. And then just dipping into the known and they're saying, oh, that's a circular settlement, not realizing that there are circular settlements all over or mm-hmm. saying, oh, that's a spear type. You know, and so early scholars had to do this, too, after all, because the most known thing was like the Iliad, you know, because mm-hmm. archaeology had not started. Right. And so you're working from the Iliad at that time. That's the most known thing. And that's why there's so many crazy what we think of as crazy today, hypotheses and theories and very early scholarship mm-hmm. on, on history and archaeology. And so it took time to really sit down and build up this giant corpus of evidence that we would call the archaeological record to really be able to say, oh, or even the epigraphic record, inscriptions and letter forms and things like that. Art, you know, all the different um, iconography on Greek vases or sculpture, mm-hmm. all those kind of things had to be built up really, really slowly over the last 200 years. And then once you now that we have that, that's actually firmer evidence in some ways of life on the ground than mm-hmm. a lot of our textual sources. Um, I oftentimes sort of liken textual sources to like Facebook today or Instagram or, or TikTok. Um, in a sense, I, I have this project. I study animals. Right. And so uh uh, I, I, what I do is I 
my job is basically to count animal bones. So that's why I'm kind of boring, right? You know, so I'm sitting there just counting one bone after another. This is a sheep tibia. That's a goat humerus. And then I, I end up counting thousands and hundreds of thousands of them. And so I'm constantly thinking to myself, how can I link this to ancient texts? Because that's something that's, that's more engaging and people recognize what they're saying. So I started counting animals in there. I'm basically mm-hmm. counting sheep and goats and cattle. And it's really interesting because the animal bones, when I count those, I get a lot of sheep and I get a lot of goat. When mm-hmm. I count it in text or in art, I get a lot of cows. I was going to say, so, yeah. Yeah, people write mm-hmm. about what's really cool and sexy. They, they mm-hmm. Just like what we do on Facebook and Instagram, we, we post the, the photo of us looking our best. We don't post mm-hmm. a photo of us with bedhead. We post the photo of that meal that is just going to make all of our friends jealous. We don't post the, the crappy little lunch we have on the bus on the way to work. And so, you know, the, the, there's something different, or, or at least percentage-wise. Obviously, mm-hmm. we occasionally make a joke. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so I see that in ancient texts as well and, and myths mm-hmm. and things like that. It's not, uh, it's not the, your, the truth is in the trash, as I like to say. You know, it's a little different than what you actually do. Yeah, because I mean, I think, you know, it's there's this, I think, expectation or or understand or like this idea that the ancient people wouldn't have lied, that they wouldn't have made stuff up. They wouldn't have, you know, invented or exaggerated or all these different things. And and yeah, you sort of look at the world around now where you're like, well, why would they not? Like if we do it now, (laughs) nonsense. I mean, there's that woman Hmm. on TikTok who says that Rome wasn't real. And there's a whole hell of a lot of people who are believing her right now. And you're saying, well, like, I mean, go back to Herodotus. There's a lot of stuff that Herodotus said that we can now be like, dude, what what were you doing? You know, like there's no there's no reason why they wouldn't have invented stuff or exaggerated, wanted to make their their writing sound more exciting or, you know, or whatever. Um, but now I have to ask because of animal bones, because it's something that comes up for me a lot. And I'm fascinated and it blows my mind. Hecatombs, hecatombs, tombs, whatever. Did they do that often? It's horrifying. Did they like actually <laughs> sacrifice like a hecatomb of animal? <laughs> I'm not sure why it's horrifying because we do it today all the time. I, I know, mean, but I can't think, think about <laughs> how many turkeys do you think were consumed in, over Thanksgiving last weekend or last week? Well, as a Canadian, I don't know how many were consumed okay. here, but <laughs> okay, but but uh, if, you know, like that idea still stands. Where no, you, you look at the modern world, if you, I lived in Athens, Greece for a while, and there's this holiday there called Sikhnopempti, which means Smoky Thursday. And this is so much better than any Thanksgiving because whatever it's a barbecue in February where the weather, of course, is nice in Greece and Mm -hmm. you just barbecue. That's the smoke. And so if you go into a butcher right before it's Sikhnopempti, it is just lamb carcasses everywhere or on Easter, you know, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, it certainly happened in the past. Of course, only in larger cities or larger sanctuaries are you going to have enough people to justify a hecatomb. I, I guess that's my point. So they would, it would be justified by the number of people that needed to eat it. It wouldn't just of be course. like Zeus and, wants like eight yeah, yeah, hecatombs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and the idea of a hecatomb is totally a mythological thing. You, you, yeah, okay, so okay. You, yeah. You, you look at like, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, they talk about slaughtering a hecatomb, this nice even number of a hundred. You look at the inscription evidence of the records of the receipts of what the Athenians were doing. We don't actually have a receipt of the number of animals they're killing, but what we have is receipts. Afterwards, they would sell the skins and the hides, 
to, mm. to, to tanners to making the leather. And so we have the receipts from that from which we can estimate the amount of animals slaughtered. And it certainly varies. And so we have a pretty decent sense of the economy behind this. And so it's not like it's always this neat number. It's kind of like what they had the funds for this year versus next year mm -hmm. versus whatever. And so, yeah, it's not always neat, neat and nice like a hecatomb. But certainly, yeah. you know, there's times when they're slaughtering more than 100 and other times where it's less. And yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people can eat a cow. I mean, I, I cook yeah. Thanksgiving. <laughs> I cook uh, Easter. I've, I've, I've roasted lambs in, for Easter for many hungry Americans and Greeks and other nationalities in, in Athens. And uh, two lambs, I can feed 70 people easily with side dishes and stuff. But, you know, <laughs> so imagine what 100 cattle can, can feed. Yeah. Well, lot. that's the thing. And it's, you know, I, I read, I've done like obviously episodes on the Iliad and the Odyssey, but I've also, uh, during the beginning of the pandemic was bored and I just started reading them out loud, just like mm -hmm. public domain translations. <laughs> and that's when I finally was like, oh my God, the number of hecatomes that they are yeah. sacrificing to the gods. Like guys, do you know what out. I call that's that? So many. Food porn. <laughs> it's food porn seriously yeah. straight and simple no, you know and and it's like it, for a long time actually scholars thought that that was reflective of society and mm -hmm. so there was this the biggest hypothesis before i started doing animal bones when i first got involved in my phd helped disprove this was that so the bronze age palaces collapse and then People, what they do to respond to that is they become basically herders and cowboys. And they look to Homer where there's all these animals. People are stealing cows from one another, you know, like cattle rustling. And so there was this one site where they, they, they studied the bones and the bones go from mostly sheep to mostly cattle in the Iron Age. And so I, I had to go restudy this. And this was, this was called the pastoral hypothesis. And the, the paleontologist, this is before there were zooarchaeologists, who studied these bones, even in his autobiography, he's like, I proved that the Greeks were gauchos, cowboys, basically, at that time. And so all that was was that the soil was more acidic at that site. Um, mm. In the upper layers, which is where the early Iron Age layers, they were over the Bronze Age layers. Because the stratigraphy, you know, mm -hmm. nobody can see the hand motions I'm doing. I'm trying to be like vertical <laughs> and down, and uh, and so the upper layers were more acidic. So the the young, the smaller animal bones were destroyed. The cattle survived. Um, but if you look at what you can do to study people's diet besides studying what they eat, so foods and plants, is you can study their bones and their teeth. And you can mm. do you can do isotope analysis is what it's called. And the nitrogen isotope that's locked into your teeth and bone give you a sense of where you are on the food chain. Mm -hmm. So if you eat more animal protein, you have an elevated isotope ratio compared to somebody who's like a vegetarian. Right. And in the early Iron Age. So at the time of Homer and those poets, I got it right that time. <laughs> yeah. At the time of Homer <laughs> and those poets, people were eating a lot less animal protein. And so, you know, people were in general, there were smaller settlements then. They, they have much poorer material culture, and they were also eating a lot less animal protein. They, they also had a lot more dietary issues. You can see this in their bones and their teeth mm -hmm. as well. Um, and so people were a lot less well-nourished and uh, more malnourished even. And uh, so to me, I tend to think of uh, the Homeric epics as food porn. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and you can think about how modern fantasy you go and you sit down and you read J.R.R. Tolkien and those hobbits are having like 12th breakfasts and like their 11th yeah. season. That's food porn too, taken from that. It's adapted to the modern world, you know? Yeah. And so that's what I think of it as. I have an article I, I'm writing on. I have a Twitter thread on it too. And, uh, but a lot of ancient texts for food porn, all those big cows. You know? Yeah, that <laughs> makes if, sense. Even if the classical <laughs> Greeks did eat more animal protein, they still ate a lot less than we eat now. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh. Oh, that's really interesting. That makes so much sense. Of just, yeah. I mean, it would have been like almost aspirational. Like, look how much they could eat. Like, <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of like you're just sort of salivating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a burger or a steak. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, and that's the thing. It. it it's just so funny and interesting to read about it in the Iliad because you just kind of wonder, like, what's the logic on where would they have gotten that many hecatombs of cattle if they're just, like, camped out on the beaches of Troy? Oh, like, yeah. Like, I know they stole a lot of things, you know? <laughs> You're like, okay, sure, they raided a lot of town. They did a lot of stuff. There's some explanation. But, like, there's just no way that it's, like, I want you to sacrifice five hecatombs of cattle. <laughs> and they're like, cool, yeah, yeah, we've got those. Yeah, our beach camps. No problem. The, like, yeah, yeah. the side of the Mediterranean. Yeah, we're, we're in tents. And our tents keep getting bigger as we sacrifice cattle and we can expand them with the leather. <laughs> but, exactly. You know. Yeah. Oh, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, Do you know anything about, um, I'm interested in the varied theories, the like less problematic theories, if there are some of Atlantis, you know, in terms of, you know, I think I I know Santorini is the big one, right? Of like, well, Santorini is Atlantis, which of course, you know, we've kind of already talked about the the volcanic eruption, while enormous and troubling, um, you know, and certainly like affected the region in a lot of ways it was definitely not atlantis um but do you know like I, I wonder about crete i guess i've never heard anything about it being a big contender but to me it seems like it would be no because the the cretan one is connected to acrotir to, to santorini um because you certainly, know at that yeah. time people think that the minoans were sort of in charge of of acrotiri right um you see this change in the fresco style and the pottery style and whatnot and so you know, people think that they were the Minoans. And uh, there is an idea that that the eruption of, of, of Thera, the, the, the volcano there, caused a tsunami, which mm-hmm. then impacted uh, Crete itself. Um, there's also an idea that the ash might have made it might have screwed up agriculture for a year that could have affected Crete. But mm-hmm. the, now that we've gotten closer dating on this stuff, Minoan civilization thrived for you know, centuries after this. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't seem as if the, as if this uh, really destroyed uh, the, 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 you know, Canosos or anything like mm-hmm. that. Um, and so, yeah, so that's not a super popular theory. I don't know about all of them. Once you get further afield, there's a big theory yeah. that Troy was Atlantis. Mm. Um, and in fact, an archeologist uh, wrote about that. One of the former excavators at Troy, but like, decades decades ago not not mm-hmm. not today the current archaeologists certainly would not believe in that having talked with him so yeah so there 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 doesn't seem to be any much scholarly plausibility for troy though mm-hmm. there there's there's this one geoarchaeologist ever heard zanger who has a lot of crazy theories. Um, he, for a while, I think, promoted that Trojan thing, and now he's promoting some other Luvian. He founded some Institute for Luvian Studies. I don't know. Um, but he has some weird theories about Atlantis that mm-hmm. I don't even know what they all are. Um, 
because people just try to find it everywhere rather than, you know, because yeah. it's so easy. You have circular settlements. You yeah. have a natural disaster. I mean, come on. When you're talking about thousands of years of time scale over the entire world, let's say, when you're looking for Atlantis, well, you're going to find some places that, that have, you know, natural disasters, whether at a rapid pace like a volcano or at a slow pace like erosion or coastal change um, that you can match to stuff. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think that the volcanologist on the oh, yeah. on the or the recent show okay. about Atlantis, her entire time, she's like, there's a thousand ways that geology can kill civilizations. And so that's the point. I mean, you know, we know this. Mm-hmm. It's not like it doesn't mean that they're all Atlantis. Yeah, maybe they all are. Everything's Atlantis. (laughs) Atlantis is the friends you make along the way. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing, right? It's I mean, it's it all goes back to the pseudo archaeology of it, right? The the idea that if you want to prove a thing, everything can suggest proof to that thing. If you want to ignore all the context of everything and just dip Mm -hmm. in and one read one article they, that to look at for your idea, you're going to find some sentence in that article that fits. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's pretty easy to do. That's why to get a PhD, you spend, you know, however many countless years reading all this stuff to have a better grounding of context, to even be a successful podcast host. You know, if you're going to stick to truth, you're going to take years of reading this stuff and rereading this stuff to be able to have the broader context. And so, you know, yeah, exactly. And so it's not even about credentials. It's just about sitting down and doing that for years, but doing it in a way that's guided by having a context for something, Mm -hmm. not guided by that unknown first, right? Mm -hmm. Guided by the unknown is going to lead you dipping into all the knowns. But if you're guided by the known, then you can Mm -hmm. start to look for, you know, things that are plausible or interesting or funny. Yeah, <laughs> I feel very proud of of my podcast evolution just based on that alone because that's exactly what I've done to perhaps to a fault sometimes where I'm like, okay, but the sources say this, 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 and this, and I'm like, is this still a good episode? Is this a good narrative story when I just tell you all the different sources and all the random crap they all said? Are people listening? Um, yes, exactly. Is anybody so. listening? I can't hear anybody out there. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> See, that's the key to podcasting. You just put it out there and you never have to. <laughs> if you're listening, uh, find me on Twitter and send me a message so that I know somebody heard this episode this far oh, out. <laughs> lots of people are going to hear this episode. I'm so excited for this series. It's, oh my God. I've hinted at, at covering Atlantis before and I've wanted to, but then, you know, the more I look into it, I'm just like, oh my God, there's just so, so much. But yeah, no, I mean, and I think the thing is Atlantis, right? People want to hear Atlantis. So I'm just excited to be the voice in their heads being like, I know you want to hear about Atlantis. I'm going to tell you why you should want to hear about it, but it's not what you think. It's not true. It's not yeah, true. Exactly. Exactly. Like Come it's away really from the interesting. Light. Come away from yeah. the light. But I think what's most fascinating is how it has become this thing, you know, for all the, the bad, you know, ultimately it's not good that it has become this thing. But to me, it's just so interesting that it has based on the fact that there is just absolutely no evidence for it. I'm like, how did this happen? You know, and that alone I think is, is so fascinating and says a lot about humanity, you know, again, not in a great way, but the fact that Plato just wrote a thing that he clearly was not trying to say was true you know, and it becomes this, it's a, it's a fascinating. I mean, humans have always believed things that are not true. 
Um, I mean, I mean, I'm sure I believe a whole <laughs> lot of things that are not true. And so, you know, I'm just going to chalk that up to reality. And uh, that's that's OK. What I, what worries me is how prevalent how it's getting worse right now. I don't yeah. mind the history of what has happened in previous generations. Um, I wasn't there to tell them no. <laughs> but uh, not that I have much sway, but you know what I mean? Like, like it's just it's worrisome to live through a period right now where these kind of things are getting worse. A lot mm-hmm. of different conspiracy theories and they all build upon each other. And uh, it's why I've taken to being more active on Twitter and mm-hmm. online. I'd like to join TikTok one day if I ever find the time. I have a series I'd love to do, but it's just time consuming. Um, somebody wants to fund me. I'll, I'll do TikToks all day. <laughs> but uh, no, it's just uh, it's it, we, we need to get out there and spread reality and knowledge and, and, and actual facts and move people back towards the known because I think a lot of it is I think the ecosystem that is the internet, a lot of the early movers on there were bad actors and mm-hmm. it's taken some time for, for better actors, whether it's academics or whether it's people like you who are doing outreach from a grounded point of view to get on there and build up a following and uh, to do that. But we're all so far behind um, mm-hmm. by like a decade. And so you can see that on YouTube. That's for sure. Oh God, yeah. So it's just like we need to do this, and I'm trying to convince everybody I can to do more of this, and because uh, we have to fight against this, and I definitely think it can't all just be debunking this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, that's part of it as well. I think uh, there needs to be a big tent room for, you know, real knowledge. Let's say to, to mm-hmm. get out there and be accessible and and fun, and uh, yeah, I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, the whole the whole reason I have this podcast started it and keep it going is is that but in the mythological realm in that, you know, you know, you read through most older, even more recent mythological retellings and the way they talk about the treatment of women is utterly wild it's like it i mean and i and i get it it's because it's from the original sources but just because the original sources didn't care like what happened to women doesn't mean we have to continue on like that yeah of course and like i said there's anachronisms throughout those this is my whole point people say oh my god we need this because it's there or mm. you can't have a black achilles or something like that and it's just like what do you mean? There was nothing real or realistic about the Iliad or the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. It was full of anachronisms that were used and changed for each retelling and each new iteration of the story. So us doing anything we want that's creative and compelling and fun is fine by me with the Iliad and the Odyssey as an archaeologist and historian. I am all for that. And if you can have a better way to tell that story, which promotes a different way of looking at women, or people, minoritized people, or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, a more juster society, let's say, but still fun and entertaining. I'm all for that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, the only reason the fun and entertaining is important is because that, that helps to get traction. It know? sure does, like, yeah. yeah. No, that, that, that's important to make it a fun thing. But but yeah, yeah. I think we need a juster way of, uh, a, a better way of telling these stories and to be pedantic about whatever. Most of the time that's just racist or sexist. Well, that's the thing. And, and, you know, and in in my case, I'm not saying anything that is inherently untrue. I'm just saying the things that we don't necessarily have a written record for because they weren't 
keep they weren't like copying down the things women wrote if women were able to write at all and thus we don't have it that doesn't mean it didn't exist yeah and plus mean we that don't was have true it. anyway so you know yeah. like you know it's i mean this is why i'm writing this this is why i'm trying to work on these threads about the the relationship between mythology and archaeology it was actually mm-hmm. this experience with atlantis that mm-hmm. made me realize that people don't actually understand uh the reality of what these myths are the myths mm-hmm. are great stories they're fantastic but they're not real and they weren't real and they weren't even real in the eyes of the Greeks. And so, you know, they, they obviously have this long oral tradition behind them, but for us to treat them as if that's a justification for saying a movie or a book or whatever is crap. What the fuck that is? Sorry. I don't know if I can curse on your no, show. No, please. I should have warned you at the beginning. Swear away. <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, you know, like it doesn't yeah. matter. The, the ancient Greeks wouldn't have cared. You know? So why yeah. should we care? Right? Yeah. So no, it's just, yeah. Yeah. People no, absolutely. blinders I mean, on. The yeah, world was like absolutely. this in the past. and Oh, yeah. 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 And most of, again, most of that is, it just comes down to racism and sexism. Every yes. time, you know? especially the really strong arguments for this, yeah, 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 you, exactly. I see that all the time. I, yeah, it's, oh, yeah, it's not they're... fun and it's just <laughs> no. silly. It's people that don't know what they're talking about in the end, and yeah. oh, yeah, it's yeah, it's fascinating the way people use this stuff to prove what they want. It's a messy time, you know, it's a messy world online, especially when you're when you're discussing something that is so linked to this, like nonsense view of whiteness and western civilization and all of that and you know there's always there's always somebody to come and scream about it i know that's the problem is it's become a battlefield and Mm -hmm. i mean that's just a problem as well it's a problem because you can't actually do education in an Mm -hmm. educational way because it becomes a battle rather than you just sharing real evidence and mm-hmm. inform people about what what the, the say archaeology or history and how it can relate to the world. Same thing with climate change as well. If, if it becomes this ideological battle, then you can't break through the noise. And so, it, it's part of the reason I try not to fight it too hard, because if mm-hmm. I'm too overt about it, then you get just so much dig back. And I'd rather try to get people hooked. And uh, if you follow me on Twitter, don't listen to me this. I I try to get people (laughs) hooked with jokes or whatever, but then you don't use buzzwords to Mm -hmm. to try to get a more nuanced, uh, less prejudiced way of looking at the world across to people. Mm -hmm. It just becomes a fight. I I have full respect for people that want to engage in these fights, but Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I don't have the energy and it doesn't, to me, seem to accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. And... I don't know if I'm accomplishing what I'm trying to accomplish, but I'm trying. The trying is <laughs> We're the, all trying, the trying in the way is we the thing. Can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I agree completely. There's a, there is a reason why my podcast does not have the word feminism in the official description on podcast apps. And it's because people are going to listen. And if, if they get it and they're learning, great. And you're if they have to cut out know, this whole part or you're going to lose <laughs> half your audience. No, I'm nah, joking. Nah, they know at this point. The, the word feminism certainly appears in the episode. And same with my Twitter followers. They certainly know. It's just, but it's about thinking about how to, how to do it with, also without stressing yourself out too much or 
Because mm-hmm. uh, look, I, I, we all do this in our free time. It's not like mm-hmm. it's 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 a job in and of itself. Even though we have jobs to do things and we're trying to pay bills and things like that, and so mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 a lot of energy. I see a lot of people I respect fighting these battles, and yeah, it's it's hard yeah. and stressful. Well, and, yeah. You got to keep yourself, you know, mentally healthy too when it comes yeah. to that stuff, right? You got to prioritize that as well. Yeah. It's real hard. <sighs> Respect to yeah. everybody that's doing what they can to fight for what's right. Let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. I mean, I feel like we've come to a sort of natural conclusion as well, but yeah. is there anything else you, you feel like you want to yell about, uh, like <laughs> Atlantis pseudo archaeology? No, um... <laughs> I don't know. Uh, tune in to Real Archaeologists if you can. Um, mm-hmm. Check out who Liv follows on Twitter um, or Instagram. I'm not on Instagram, so I don't know. Um, try your best. I tend to think that the best history and archaeology out there is actually just made organically right now. I hope one day that'll change. So, yeah, and Atlantis is not real. Neither is ancient <laughs> aliens. And uh, the, the, what I really want to say, though, is that there's a lot of really cool archaeology out there. And Mm -hmm. there really is. And so go and find it. There's a lot of us on social media, YouTube, et cetera, sharing TikTok, even a few people Mm -hmm. and uh, try to get into that ecosystem and branch out and find more really cool people. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, real archaeology is completely fascinating. I took a couple courses in it in my undergrad <laughs> 10 years ago and it was great and I'd love to do more. So yeah, no, it's, that's the thing where the real stuff is, is interesting enough. You don't yeah, have to go exactly. to the, it's really the dark. Fu- it's really fucking stuff. cool. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And it's, it's usually pretty dirty as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I, that covered in dirt and also in a sexual way. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, God, it's ancient Greece and yeah, Rome. Lord. Exactly. I mean, I, I say Rome there because that's where all the really dirty stuff was, but. Dirty Greek stuff. It's true. I have I a whole Twitter thread on erotic vases. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will absolutely um, include your your Twitter handle in the episode's description, as well as some Twitter threads that you've mentioned about uh, okay. the Atlantis <laughs> mess. Uh, but do you want to share vases, your? I guess. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Please send me that one, and I'll I'll add the erotic vases <laughs> in as well. But do you want to uh, mention your Twitter handle as yeah, well? Yeah, it's my name. Flint Dibble. So I'm named after a rock, Flint, and uh, Dibble's my last name. That's an ancient digging implement to plant seeds. So it's like a good archaeology name, Flint Dibble. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for doing thank this. You. I really, yeah. really appreciate it. <laughs> Oh, nerds. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm thrilled to be bringing you this series, like I've said, both because it's fascinating and also important to look at these stories and how they've morphed into what they are today and what that means. As mentioned in the episode, Flint does a lot of really interesting Twitter threads, both on Atlantis and the issues surrounding these searches and archaeology, that the actual archaeology that he studies. I've linked to them in this episode's description, and they're referenced a bit in the episode itself. You can also find Flint's Twitter linked in the description as well. So go ahead and follow him so you can learn even more. I know it's disappointing. 
to learn that Atlantis isn't some super cool Greek myth that I've just somehow avoided all these years. That everything we've learned from pop culture adaptations actually perpetuates an idea that's become, if very separate from the fun pop culture, a dark and dangerous notion. But hey, like I've said, you can still be interested in Atlantis, but this way you have all the information, so you can stay interested in Plato's dialogues, what he was doing with this allegory and why, and what his points were. Just don't go looking for a lost city, because there isn't one. On Tuesday, more about that allegory and why he used it, what it means, how we know that it's fictional, and what it really means to have no sources beyond Plato, and more. Stay tuned. If I've gained any new listeners via these episodes, too, thank you for joining. You'll find actual mythology in the rest of the show and a much more narrative storytelling style. But narrative storytelling doesn't actually fit with Atlantis, so I've had to adapt. Thank you all. You're truly the best. I'm Liv, and I love actual mythology and history very much. Philosophy I could take or leave. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. 
with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.